0: Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon Give Voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk voucher.
1: Hello and welcome to The Edition, The Spectator's look at some of the most important and intriguing issues in the week's magazine. I'm Lara Prendergast. On this week's episode... Is Boris about to lose Scotland? Plus, do we need more public information campaigns telling us how to behave? And finally, can a relationship survive if you don't hug for a year? First up, the SNP is in turmoil, with the party's former leader Alex Salmond alleging that Nicola Sturgeon has misled the Scottish Parliament and broken the ministerial code. But back in Westminster, there's turmoil in number 10, which means they don't seem to be very focused on the union. So, can Boris get his side in order? In this week's cover piece, Katie Balls, the Spectator's Deputy Political Editor, explains the plan to save the Union. Katie joins me now alongside Alex Massey, the Spectator Scotland Editor. Katie, in your cover piece this week, you write that government infighting is now putting the Union at risk. Can you tell listeners what exactly has been happening in Number 10 over the past few weeks?
2: Yes, so there's been various reports, but ultimately what's happened is that the head of the union unit has left his role, that's Oliver Lewis, and he was in his role for a grand total of two weeks. And prior to him, Luke Graham for Tory MP had that role, and he also left the role within the past month. So two big changes to that unit, which seems to be on the way out as a thing. And this departure of Oliver Lewis is not actually down to a big argument about the union strategy. It seems to be more down to various factors in fighting claims, briefings, which was sparked by the appointment of Henry Newman and Simone Finn to senior roles in Number 10. They are former colleagues of Michael Gove and they are close friends of the Prime Minister's fiancée, Carrie Simmons, and it reopened this almost civil war from a few months ago when we saw Dominic Cummings leave Number 10. But I think that if you move away from the various stories about what Dylan the dog is or isn't up to, the hard facts is that there is no longer ahead of the union unit and this has repercussions in terms of how the government plans to approach the union strategy.
1: And and when it did exist what was the union unit's approach going to be?
2: Yes so Oliver Lewis's approach was and he was due to present this I think last Friday but it got cancelled because he had quit was to have quite an abrasive strategy when it comes to trying to save the union and ultimately you have the May elections coming up and in the build-up Oliver Lewis wanted to create almost a vote-leave style campaign base within government, bringing around probably 40 staff members, replicating Task Force Europe, which is the team that worked with the Brexit deal. And Oliver Lewis and David Frost all focused on this and ultimately quite I think attack line but also work, trying to in a way crush the SNP in tone but being very focused and bringing together the various parts so the cabinet office work on the union the Scotland office works on the union but this unit would have full control might work for the Scottish Conservatives but ultimately it, the general impression is they would bow to no one and they would just take control of the entire Scotland strategy the prime minister was understood to have signed off on this but now actually it feels as though the union unit no longer exists exists and, and instead is going to be replaced by cabinet ministers taking on a more prominent role.
1: Alex, all this is happening against the backdrop of growing drama within the Scottish Parliament. Can you explain the latest in the Sturgeon-Salmon feud?
3: <laughs> well, how long do we have? The latest is that, that things are continuing to operate at a sort of febrile, fever pitch level in Scotland, but nobody is quite certain exactly how it is going to play out. Alex Salmond is believed to be appearing before the Holyrood Committee investigating the Scottish government botched handling of the complaints made against him. He's supposed to be appearing tomorrow, Friday. The upshot of that is frankly unknowable at present. Nicholas Sturgeon is then due to give evidence next week. And so far, we have heard rather more from Salmond and his accusations of corruption, of conspiracy against him than we have heard from Sturgeon. So we haven't heard as much of the defence case, if you like. At present, however, it seems quite clear that the affair is hurting the SNP in as much as it's persuading some voters that, well, is everything really going quite as it should in Scottish politics right now? I might think again about voting for the SNP in May, but importantly, these second thoughts, these doubts and so on, are not yet strong enough to persuade voters not to vote for the SNP. An opinion poll out today uh, still has the nationalists on around 50% of the vote, still suggests that they might win as many as Seventy seven of the hundred and twenty nine seats at Holyrood in May, you know, a comfortable working majority with all that entails for the national question for the future of the United Kingdom. So if if the Salmon Sturgeon affair is hurting the SNP, it isn't doing so yet in ways that will salvage very much for unionist parties at present.
1: And Alex, how is the drama that Katie talks about in number ten being seen in Scotland?
3: I mean, to be honest, it's generally seen as being fairly irrelevant, in as much as, you know, as Katie said. In her excellent piece, and so on, a lot of the arguments in Downing Street appear to be about personalities rather more than about policy. And even when it comes to to policy, there are certain fundamental problems when it comes to anything Downing Street wants to do vis a vis Scotland. And the first and most obvious of those, I'm afraid, is the Prime Minister himself. Boris Johnson is monumentally, heroically unpopular in Scotland. And so it is really quite difficult to see how, whether you have a union unit or or you don't have a union unit that makes very much difference when the front man is considered toxic in Scotland and 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 is just incapable of selling the advantages of union to Scotland. And so, to that extent, it's not quite clear to me that any rearrangement of personnel or even of approach in Downing Street is necessarily the kind of thing that is going to to work in Scotland. Although I would I would say say this one last thing on that. There. There's this notion that that somehow you can replicate the tactics of the Vote Leave campaign and that will do the trick in Scotland strikes me as being fanciful in the extreme because the circumstances are so completely different that I do not see there being any really coherent or convincing read-across from one campaign to the other.
1: Katie, you have a line in your piece where you say that Boris thinks Westminster can do to Scotland what the EU did to member states, essentially ingraining itself within the country. I mean, it seems a slightly risky tactic, especially from a prime minister who was so opposed to the EU. What's going on there?
2: Yes, so this looks at the UK Internal Market Bill, which is famed, I think, probably most for the fact it broke international law when it came to Northern Ireland um, around Brexit. But it did various other things. And one of the things that really interests Boris Johnson here is the idea that it gives government new powers to get more involved in Scottish affairs. So, for example, the Prime Minister could say that Glasgow drug deaths are surging. So the UK government is willing to fund treatment centers or other initiatives um, that could be carried out by the city council and local authorities could bid for Westminster funds. Uh, you almost cut out the, the middleman, so to, so, so to speak. And I think the idea there is you can have, a, if people can see the effect of the Westminster government in doing some of these things, you might have more of a, an approach of a UK-wide approach. Another thing that comes in is, for example, lots of people are very keen on pushing the vaccine programme because they think that actually among Scottish voters and the focus groups, the vaccine programme lands in A UK wide project. They think they're helped by the fact it had a sluggish start in Scotland in the beginning. So it was the fact of all these parts working together. So, but I think when it comes down to these two different approaches, the Lewis approach would have been to almost use these powers to say, we're doing this because the SNP has failed you, so we're stepping in. And then this Michael Gove approach, which I would say is probably the dominant other approach, which probably now perhaps is in the ascendancy, is to just say, we love you guys, so we're using these powers to help you because we're a lovely United Kingdom. Obviously, yeah, at that, that, perhaps not the exact words Michael Gove would use, but it's almost this love-bombing approach. So in terms of the exact things they're doing, I don't think they're necessarily too different in terms of both approaches but the idea is I think what the union unit under Oliver Lewis I think was planning to do was to take a much more hostile tone and almost say that you're stepping in and you're doing these things but constantly point at SNP failures whereas I think that the approach that Michael Gove favours and now there is a cabinet committee where Michael Gove will be on this committee which the prime minister is chairing um you know helping come up with the strategy is to is to go along with the idea that you, you catch more flies of honey than vinegar so if you can talk up the positive progress that is that is going to be the more lasting thing and i think scottish conservatives probably see some virtue in that approach but but that is where we are in terms of a Pushing it, but I think people do worry of the Michael Gove tactics that he is an intellectual politician, and therefore could come up with um, some ideas which are described to me as too clever by half. um, And people worry about you know constitutional reviews, idea of a referendum about having a referendum, all these things, which they think that if if you are in listening mode, he could come back with.
1: And Alex, just finally, if Sturgeon does win a majority in May, what are we likely to then see happen? Will she will she demand a new referendum on on the issue of independence?
3: Well, I think it's very difficult to see how she could avoid making exactly that demand. You know, the independence issue is the most important issue for SNP voters. It's also the most important issue for conservative voters. And, and so if the May election is seen as a proxy, if you like, for the question as to whether there should be another referendum or not, and if it delivers a SNP majority, then you get into a situation situation where although the Prime Minister and the UK government has the legal authority to refuse that, their moral authority to do so is open to question. And the longer they refuse it, the less moral authority they they have in all likelihood. So the question then becomes whether the people of Scotland will be so outraged, if you like, that they will demand a referendum that at the moment is more popular as a hypothetical question than as a real one. But if you get to a stage where 65, 70% of people in Scotland are saying that, we know we really do want a referendum, it becomes quite difficult to see how the Prime Minister can de facto ignore that, even if legally he would be able to do so. So the, the, the question then becomes is, is that the meaning of a Holyrood election result in which the SNP win a victory? And I, I think Nicola Sturgeon made a blunder a couple of weeks ago where she said, in, in, almost in passing, that one of the things this election would also be about would be about the Scottish government's handling of the coronavirus uh, um, emergency. And so, well, that's muddying the waters a little bit. I think that allows a little bit of wiggle room for unionist parties to say, ah, but Nicola Sturgeon has herself said that this wasn't a single issue election campaign, that this wasn't a single, you know, that, that the election result therefore shouldn't necessarily be understood stood as a clear demand for a second independence referendum. Now, whether that that line is is deemed plausible by the electorate, obviously only time will tell. But I think that allows an opening for unionists to say, as Theresa May used to, that whatever else you may think and so on, as we come out of the pandemic, we hope, now is not the time uh, for reopening the national question. But again, that that is a line that I think is subject to the law of diminishing returns. It may hold for the time being, but it isn't a long-term answer.
2: I think things get very tricky for Boris Johnson if Nicola Sturgeon wins that majority because things start to become very unpredictable. So even though you speak to those who've previously worked on the Better Together campaign and are thinking about things now, they still think this is going to be quite slow. Actually, it could be someone described me as a slow four-dimensional car crash um, but just to get that idea in sense so it could be you know several years of toing and froing. but the point is it could soon become not an issue for political strategists sitting around a table or ministers bickering about how exactly you do something but down to lawyers and the courts and civil servants then thinking we have to prepare for something because it could be coming down the track because a court ruling could come over. So I think it gets into such difficult to predict territory that it just adds to the sense that for all the you know various factions and all, everything that's going in number 10, like the focus really should be on the next few months. They are very important.
1: Thank you, Katie, and thank you, Alex. Next, posters telling us to look them in the eyes have been plastered across England as the government tries to improve COVID compliance. But do these hard hitting adverts work? In this week's magazine, Rory Sutherland, who writes the Spectator's Wikiman column and is vice chair of the marketing firm Ogilvy, says the government needs to recognise the difference between coercion and voluntary action. Rory joins me now alongside Deirdre McCloskey, a professor of economics, history, English and communication at the University of Illinois at Chicago. Rory, in this week's magazine, you discuss public information campaigns, the peg, of course, being those new look-them-in-the-eyes COVID adverts. What do you think makes a good public service ad?
0: Well, I think there's a distinction between the nanny state and the useful state. And I think it's perfectly possible, indeed, it's highly implausible to think that there isn't a fairly large amount of useful information that government couldn't impart to citizens. And it seems to me that this channel of communication has been completely lost by which I mean there's an awful lot of coverage about politics and, indeed, spin-doctoring within politics is largely about party political gain. But we don't look at the way in which we can solve problems voluntarily through the provision of information and through collective voluntary action nearly enough. So, bizarrely, if you think about it, government is dominated, really, by lawyers who occasionally take advice from economists – and that's, that's Richard Thaler's phrase, not my own. Anyone else interested in helping out the economists or the lawyers need not apply. And it seems to me that a very bizarre thing that arises from this is that government tends to approach solutions from compulsion first, incentive second, and persuasion only comes third. Whereas logically, we should really do it in the, in the reverse order.
4: I completely agree. As a classical John Stuart Mill type myself, that's exactly the order. And of course, in, in, in persuasion, I would like the government, if it were Sweden or Holland or, or, or Norway, to be candid. For example, all large governments these days, and they're all large, do a tremendous amount of purchasing of one kind or another. And they have information about what computer works better than another. I would like them to actually say that. Now, of course, the danger is that they're corruptible, not necessarily a straight uh, cash (laughs) transaction, but of course, in my own country, That happens. So here's why I agree very much with what you're saying. We 19th century liberals don't like coercion, physical coercion. And as you say, if you reach first for the fist, that's not going to
0: work out very well. And it also, I think, has the effect of making people feel remote from their government in the sense that I'm not an economist, I'm not a lawyer, It essentially monopolises the definition of problems within their favoured areas of expertise, which are remote from voluntary action. And there's an awful lot of voluntary action solving coordination problems, and I call this very simply painting the lines on the car park. Okay. Even as a libertarian, I think, you'd have to be a fairly militant libertarian to object to people painting lines on a car park. And indeed, the lines on the car park don't prevent you parking in... I mean, you know, I I can still go into Tesco's car park and park across the diagonal occupying two spaces if I'm fanatically uh, devoted to doing so. But the lines in the car park simply help me behave in a more pro-social, mutually beneficial way without actually imposing either legislative or, or else economic incentives to achieve that end? Of course, I
4: would prefer that the car park was, was privately owned. That would be my only amendment. But sure, being free doesn't make you free to blow COVID-19 up someone else's nose or to park in a way that screws other
0: people. And so it simply strikes me as very odd that, I mean, if you take the UK government, I think it spends less on... It's fifty—it's getting on for 50% of GDP. Yeah. Yet it actually spends less on useful communication than spec savers plus B&Q. and I mean, for Deirdre's <laughs> benefit, that would be kind of Walmart plus Warby Parker or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it strikes me that... Um, there was even an extraordinary case, actually, where they spent something like sixteen billion upgrading the West Coast Main Line, yeah, and they were slightly scolded because they spent a million so or so pounds advertising the fact that the railway line had been improved. <laughs> now, by that logic, it's perfectly okay to re- to improve a railway line so long as you keep the fact a secret. Yeah, yeah, the obvious it. purpose of improving the railway line is that more people use it. More people are unlikely to use it unless you've told them it has been improved. And I have to say, Deirdre's piece on humanomics absolutely fascinated me because it made the point that persuasion, sweet talk, the whole frame of conversation, plays a vital part in the economy. And the interesting thing is, i learned this because, you know, in primatology, you get those strange people who effectively spend four months of every year in the jungle observing the behaviour of the same group of baboons or chimpanzees. And one of the things they observe, actually, it's a kind of omission they suddenly notice after a few months, is you will never see two chimpanzees cooperating to carry a large log which is too ha- heavy for either one of them to carry on their own, where one of them picks up one end, the other one picks up the other end, and they carry the log back to camp. And it occurred to me the reason that doesn't happen is because without A, imagination, which is the imagination to realise what you could do if you worked together, and B, persuasion, which is the ability of one chimp to actually convince the other chimp to participate in this cooperative effort, you don't really have cooperation at all in the absence of imagination and persuasion. And yet economics, bizarrely, Adam Smith said that he said that humans have a natural propensity to truck and barter, and economics assumes that takes place automatically, and yet it so obviously doesn't. Although, in that very passage that you're speaking of, in the beginning of The Wealth of Nations,
4: he points out that this propensity to truck and barter may be a consequence, he says, of the faculty of speech. And indeed... In many other places, he refers to what I call sweet talk. In fact, his first job was to teach 14-year-old boys to write. That was his job at Glasgow because Scottish boys went to university at 14 and then they might come down to Oxford or Cambridge. So Adam Smith is rhetorical in a deep sense. But as you say, that was almost immediately lost in economics and hasn't ever come back. Now, economists think of language exclusively as a signaling device. In other words, they think of people as vending machines. Yeah. You put your pound coin into it and out comes a Coon Cadbury's.
0: Yeah, so utility. Yeah,
4: exactly. And and it's it's a... It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a very thin understanding of humans, and that's fine for some purposes in the foreign exchange market, although actually even there, jokes travel around the world very fast among foreign exchange dealers who are establishing trust by that means. They t- tell each other jokes at the be- be- beginning of the day. So even in the most um, kind of uh, uh, vending machine uh, situation, language matters tremendously.
1: Rory, I I wanted to ask you about vaccine passports because the government obviously, are talking or seem to be suggesting this might be on the way. I mean, do you think there's a way of kind of persuading people to take the vaccine without having to kind of have such sort of strict measures perhaps being brought in later on?
0: It's complicated because I don't know the maths fully, by which I mean I don't know the extent to which the vaccine... It seems to prevent serious infection very effectively. Whether Whether it actually slows transmission, we suspect it does, but we're not yet sure. And, of course, what you want people to do depends very much on what the medical evidence suggests. I mean, there are complicated things here, by the way, which is the perfect vaccination regime would probably have vaccinated highly sociable young people first. Because they're the people most likely to be super spreaders. But you can't really ethically say your grandmother had to die so this guy could attend a rave in Manchester. It doesn't sit very well. So undoubtedly, you always end up with a collision between ethics, persuasion and science. And... It's very easy to say we must act on the science, but network science suggests you should actually have vaccinated likely super spreaders before anybody else. And in the same way, we need to know what behaviours are desirable before I think we can actually decide what kind of persuasion is, is necessary. But is there a means by which you could voluntarily signal the fact you'd been vaccinated, which was a reliable signal, but not compulsory? That would seem to me a fairly useful thing to instigate.
4: Well, it would be extremely good because then in the line of vending machines, vending machine incentives, but still, if we could see no reason why we can't signal in this social way that we are a certain kind of person. I mean, after all, if I go for a job interview and I go in my blue jeans and uh, Uh, the crappy blouse and don't have any makeup on then I can't blame the employer for thinking I'm a jerk and so in the world of persuasion of course these politenesses and these um, signals matter
0: and of course they're essential to establishing trust because a costly signal is a much more reliable uh, is a much more reliable sign of you know uh, of probity for example or of long-term intention. I never really understood this for ages. I always thought, why do businesses put established 1881? It's quite funny as a Brit, by the way, because you go to the United States and you see businesses that say established 1973. Now, in Britain, you can't really do that. It's got to be 19th century at the very least before you can start bragging, you see. But nonetheless, the fact that you've been in business for a long time suggests that you're playing the long game, which is you know, uh, regular lo- the creation of a regular and loyal customer base through mutually beneficial value exchange rather than ripping people off and disappearing. You know, it's a, it's a signal of something. And so allowing people to signal reliably the fact they've been vaccinated in a way that works, and also, I would argue, allowing private institutions to say, no, you know, no vaccination signal, no admission, seems to me entirely reasonable. Well, of course it does. I mean, it's, it's complicated because one of the reasons I'm not sure, to be honest, there's much transmission of this virus out of doors. The evidence for outdoor transmission seems to be incredibly small. It's complicated because I do support the legislation against outdoor gatherings for the simple reason that outdoor gatherings of drunk people tend to become indoor gatherings of drunk people when it gets cold. OK, so, you know, there are there are complicated things where you've got a mixture of behavioural understanding, ethical understanding and science. And that actually happened at the White House. There was a Rose Garden event where everybody went inside. I think that's where no, that Trump... Well, that was on purpose, though. Oh, that was deliberately to show that you weren't no, really... Well, of, of course. course. I similarly wear a mask, actually, out of doors, simply through good manners, on the grounds that, regardless of the science... Other people may be alarmed by a non-mask wearer, so why would any more than I don't expose my genitals in public, why would I expose other people to alarming you know, s- stimuli? And that's just a question of, go- of volu- good manners, if you like, are costly signalling, aren't they? It's more effortful to be polite than it is to be rude. Yeah, no. absolutely.
4: And, and, and I, that comes to a very deep point here. In a society of compulsion... Ethics is being substituted. So pe- people are not having to be ethical because they're being forced to do the socially c- correct thing. Think of the volunteer forces in the First World War, the PALS, for example. When the war got on for a year or so, they had to move to a draft, but, or at least the government thought it had to. But the volunteerism was an act of ethics. It was, in my view, a foolish one, but it, it was ethically based. And people were encouraged to have those kinds of nationalistic ethics. Um, and so uh, you drive out the ethical impulse, the politeness,
0: you crowd it out. So, interestingly, the ethos of a volunteer division is likely to be different, and the ethics, from, from the, those of conscripts. In
4: the beginning, um, unit co- cohesion eventually makes everyone into pals, I think.
0: So it's a peculiar thing, isn't it, that, I mean, if you look at the most extreme cases of sort of academic wokeism, they are more or less proposing that you can legislate... That's right. ...for good behaviour... And it always struck me that ultimately you need people to be non-racist because they're just not very racist, yeah. not because they've been coerced into not, you know, into not conducting those acts.
4: Yeah, I wrote on this for another magazine last year, and I signed the Harper's Magazine letter about free speech, and so did Rowling, who is anti-transgendered, I think in her case in just a kind of foolish way. And people would say, well, how could you do that? Well, because we're both being polite and tolerating each other's uh, occasional bump on the street without raising it to the level of you're evil and I need to bring in the power of the state to punish you.
0: So you were perfectly happy being a co-signatory to a letter with people with whom you disagreed out of a general principle of civility?
4: Noam Chomsky, for example whom I debated a couple of years ago, and uh, strangely in hay on why, (laughs) of all
0: places. (laughs) The other thing that fascinates me is your suggestion, which obviously, as someone working in the advertising industry, I find uh, particularly uh, uh, reassuring, is the idea that about 25% of economic wealth is really generated by persuasion.
4: That's right, and it's more and more. Because any managerial or supervisory position, being a foreman in a factory, your employees or your subordinates are not slaves. You can't just bring out the rod and attack them if they don't do what they're supposed to do. You have to sweet talk them. And managerial positions are a big part of a modern economy and get larger and larger as the physical part of an economy gets automated. You have cotton picking machines so you don't need to as the head of a gang of pickers to persuade
0: you just tell the machine to do what it does one of the things I've campaigned for is that we should never have tax cuts you should have tax rebates and they should be paid annually now fanatical libertarians go nuts because they claim that um, uh, this would effectively you know mean you were lending money to the government But my argument is that you could then encourage people to accept less of a rebate if they didn't need the money. And you could actually create a social norm around wealthier people essentially giving 50%, perhaps, of their rebate back to hypothecated causes like the NHS. And you could also hold your left-wing friends to account, because if your left-wing friends keep on going, we should pay more tax, uh, we should give more to the NHS, and you say, well, you don't have any kids, you've got two enormous salaries... Uh, What did you actually give back of your tax rebate? And they say, nothing. I think you can hold them to account as bullshitters. This is the vital thing, which is that persuasion is a problem-solving tool. Government doesn't use it at all. Indeed, it's monopolised by people who are either through their economic doctrine or indeed through their loyally uh, tendencies to focus only on solutions that involve either compulsion or incentives. And they're not playing with a full deck. I agree with you. I completely agree.
1: Thank you, Rory, and thank you, Deirdre. And finally, some couples who live apart have been unable to see each other indoors for almost a year. In this week's magazine, writer Rob Palk wonders when he'll be able to see his partner properly. To discuss what life has been like, Rob joins me now alongside the journalist Emily Hill. Rob, in this week's magazine, you wonder when you'll be allowed to hug your girlfriend again. Can you explain to listeners why you haven't seen each other as much as I assume you would have liked to?
5: Largely because we both house share with other people. So from a mixture of us being good civic-minded people and also not all of our housemates being entirely relaxed about house visits <laughs> and it being illegal, we've been rather limited to sort of outdoor encounters, if that doesn't give the wrong impression. <laughs> um, but yeah, sort of sedate walks. Obviously now it's warmer That's bit more of a thing at least it's a tad frustrating after um nearly a year after after yeah
1: no I I can imagine and you must be fairly bored of walks now are you you looking forward to lockdown starting to ease
5: yeah I am enormously looking forward to it although getting the dates through the other the other week almost makes it feel longer in a way i would, I would rather it came as a joyous surprise that right it's over now <laughs> that's all dealt with but oh bloody hell july <laughs> that's an awfully long time
1: emily have you been dating during lockdown yes tell us about it what's it like what was it like so i was very civic minded and good person
6: early on um and uh obviously when the outbreak happened in london all my friends got ill I have asthma, um, chronic asthma, so I take a tablet every night. So I was taking the whole thing seriously. I was thinking, okay, well, I'd rather die in London than live in Norfolk. Plus, I don't want to infect, you know, potentially infect a load of old people in the country. So I thought, right, okay. But the thing is, is that I did it the first time because I was told, okay, this is very necessary for you know, stop overwhelming the NHS and so forth. And um, so I did it very conscientiously and did everything I was told. And my reward for doing everything I was told was to have to then do it all again... And by that point, all my friends had coronavirus and recovered from the coronavirus. And quite a few of them had given their blood plasma to, to develop the vaccine. So at that point, I sort of lost my mind, rather, as uh, when it came to lockdown, because so much of it just didn't make sense to me. And then I found I fell violently in love uh, with a man, uh, very unexpectedly. It's all a bit complicated because he's married but his name is Peter Hitchens. And I found that I became completely addicted to everything that he was saying. And after sort of thinking that he was mad before the pandemic, I then started listening to what he was saying and then looking into what happened in Japan and what's happened in Sweden and sort of reading into the whole situation and started to actually stop being afraid of the virus and stop being terrified by everything else um, that's been done in the name of the virus. And then so when the lockdown restrictions came back again, I actually phoned my doctor and I said, well, look, you know, I have asthma. So do I need to shield? And they said no. So I just started to think, OK, well, what makes sense to me and doing that? And I feel tremendous. I I have to say I've been so depressed by this article because it's so so unspeakably sad. And the idea that somebody is living in these circumstances and taking, you know, not hugged their own girlfriend for an whole entire year...
5: I mean, if I could interject, I said I've not been allowed to hug my girlfriend.
6: Oh, brilliant. Oh, well, that cheers me up. Have you had sex with her? Because I think that's very important.
5: Are you asking me to admit whether I've committed a crime on this?
6: I very much hope that you have. I think that you should. I think you should go and go and commit as much crime as possible. I think that's your duty as a man, to make love to your woman, who you love, right?
1: I think I'll move this one slightly because one of the points that, Rob, you make is that this new puritanism has taken hold of the country and that even to sort of suggest that you want to, you know have dinner with someone or have a drink is sort of now seen as being kind of almost sacrilegious emily is that something that you've noticed
5: i think my position is slightly different from emily's in that i do think on the whole obviously there's intricacies that you can disagree with but i don't particularly want to kill people etc but i do think this has perhaps empowered some people who quite like the idea of stopping their housemates having sex (laughs) And, and quite like the idea that those people down the road can't have a barbecue anymore and I think it'll be difficult once we are finally back to normal for those people to give up that power, which does bother me a little. Uh, I think there's, you're still going to get people tutting at you in parks years after <laughs> it's completely safe to be in a park. Uh, and uh, yeah, that is a worry for me.
1: Emily, do you think lockdown has just been a sort of sinister plan to stop people from having sex? I don't think it's
6: been a sinister plan at all. I think it's been an absolute shit show. The thing is, is like if you're told stay home and save lives, then then I'm afraid you're quite right, aren't you? Because if you do go out, then you're killing people. I mean, that's my that's that's the that's what we gather from that situation. I mean, I think you're right about the sexual puritanism, and and I'd like to turn you to 1984, um, which basically, you know, unlike Winston, Julia had grasped the inner me- meaning of the party's sexual puritanism. It was not merely that the sex instinct created a world of its own which was outside the party's control and which therefore had to be destroyed if possible. What was more important was that sexual privation induced hysteria, which was desirable because it could be transformed into war fever and leader worship. I mean, I think, like, its I can't believe that we're living in a country that has banned sex. And I can't believe a man who's most famous for serially cheating on his wife has done it. And I, I also think it's very worth reading, if you haven't already, this brilliant piece by Rachel Cunliffe in The New Statesman, which basically says that we're we're in a, a unique state in this country because in Italy, they, and most reasonable countries that value human love, there are get-outs and you you wouldn't be illegal. I mean, it's just absolutely,
5: totally wrong. Has the sex ban applied to the whole country? Because I'm in Leicester, we're, we're the only place that's solidly had a, let, a lockdown throughout the entire year. Was there a kind of a, a brief sex interlude in the, uh, in the rest of the country or was it still banned?
6: Well, I actually think if you actually scrutinise... So when I completely lost patience was I followed this barrister on Twitter and he basically pointed out that uh, sex was actually perfectly legal if you could do it for work purposes. So I mean obviously I've got a very inventive brain so I just broke a light bulb and just had my man come over to fix it for me and paid him in the old fashioned way um the oldest barter system in the world um very beautiful way of doing these things and I'm sure you would have done like it doesn't sound like you it sounds like you've been forced into this it reads rather like that you know sort of I don't know I think I think it's lovely to speak to you because I did feel sorry for you but I felt like you know, when you say kissing is now a crime, I think Christ Almighty! Like it is, I know
1: it is, but it's it's so. As I keep saying, I'm sorry, it's just so wrong. Rob, just finally to end on, has absence made the heart grow fonder?
5: I think it has, on the whole. Yeah, uh, it's been severely tested. I mean, I'm, I bear, I, I'm I'm forever in mind of the fact that the kind of Second World War generation went away for five years, and many relationships held, you know, held on, but then. Um, anecdotally lots of them weren't that great afterwards I mean uh, the the people were shell-shocked and despairing and on pills and stuff so it's um uh, yeah it's it's been tested severely but I, uh, I hope it will prosper in the future when it's finally allowed
1: Rob and Emily thank you very much for joining thank you Rob and Emily and that's everything this week if you've enjoyed the podcast why not pick up the magazine you can read everything we've talked about and much more We've got a diary from the former Chancellor George Osborne, Lionel Shriver's writing about why she still uses a physical dictionary, and Matthew Lynn on why stock markets are soaring as the economy tanks. Thank you for listening, and do you join us again next week?
0: Get 12 weeks of The Spectator in print and online for just £12. And we'll give you a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher.